This is a 3CR podcast. And this is Published or Not. How do you read books? Hardback, paperback or ebook? There are so many books going straight to ebook now and the biggest genre is science fiction, fantasy and romance. And it is the latter that makes up the plot of today's book without further ado. Welcome, Jessica Detman. Thank you, Jan. Willa is 36 years old and she started working as a receptionist for the Smith family. Now she has an office and time to do her side job. What's that? The Smith family, Gladstone and Smith is the name of the company, and they produce instruction manuals, which is a business that is quite quickly running out of time to be valuable in the world anymore because everything's produced overseas. And Willa has started to produce romance novels as an e-book publisher. On her own, she chooses the books, she finds the editors, she has the books edited, she has done a rudimentary course in uh, in laying out the stories and she has everything edited and proofread and then puts them up online and sells them, puts a cover on them as a, you know, just a JPEG and chooses the images and buys the stock photos for that. It's quite, she's she's learnt a lot, hasn't she, over a time? She has, and she's self-taught. And, and she's editing manuscripts without being mean. The dance she did with the authors, pleased to consider deleting certain overused or problematic words and phrases. She does all of that too. She does all of that. She also uses freelancers, but she has learned quite a lot about editing books as she's been doing this for about seven years now. So you've told us about the Smith family and how their business is not particularly going well. But who are the Smith family? The patriarch is Gladstone Smith. And as Willa says, he's the sort of person who puts an ampersand between his first and second names and names his company Gladstone and Smith to make it sound like he's in partnership with someone other than his own colossal ego. (laughs) He, in fact, has his own four sons working for him in various roles that may or may not be actual jobs. And he pays everybody's salary because he's independently wealthy. And he also has Willa, who was the receptionist and is now a publisher, the only book publisher in the company, and her cousin Imogen, who is now the receptionist. The oldest son, Dougald, chiselled jaw, smouldering, bouldering. He's into rock climbing and things athletical. Or he's either shy or a self-important arsehole. (laughs) Yeah, Willa can't quite tell which one it is with him. (laughs) Then there's the twins, Alastair and Angus, and they've both got girlfriends now and one of those is Willa's cousin Imogen. Mm. So it's all very much staying in the family. And then there's Ewan, her workmate. They shared a a similar type of humour and the I don't like Monday game. Just explain that one. (laughs) The I don't like Monday game is a game they play in the the meeting, the the all-staff meeting that takes place every Monday in Gladstone's office and they, before the meeting, they choose a band or a singer and they have to work as many song titles from that band or singer into general conversation in the meeting as they can without being noticed. Where did this idea come from, Jessica Detman? That that is made up. I've not I've not played that <laughs> in any of the many Monday meetings I've been to. Now Willa and Ewan nearly had a kiss, but he is now married and she knows he wants a family. What does Willa think about having children? Willa doesn't want children. 
and she likes children. She's very close to her friends' kids. She's not anti-children by any means, but it isn't something she wants. I think one of the best lines of this was a quote, her uterus remained a pristine display home. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, she's, she's troubled a bit by everybody else's attitude to her not wanting children, but she's quite firm. You mentioned her friend Beck, married with two Mm -hmm. kids, and Willa does adore these kids. And she learns from Beck that another name for worming tablets is bum chocolate. And, (laughs) And, you know, I had never heard of bum dumping. Well, let's not explain that. Let's not. Let's leave something to the imagination. (laughs) Her other true friend is Cat. They tried to share a house, but Willa was way too untidy. But once a year, over the last seven years, they do something together, which explains the title without further ado. Every year, Willa and Cat sit down and Cat once again tries to watch Kenneth Branagh's adaptation from 1993 of the Shakespeare play Much Ado About Nothing, which is Willa's absolute touchstone in every part of her work and life and romantic life. And in particular, it's the opening scenes of that movie that have always made her heart soar and made her feel hope and joy and romantic possibility in the world. And she is looking for that feeling in the books she publishes and in the people she dates. Even in the romance manuscript she has sent, there's lots of different plot devices Forced proximity, hidden identity, unlikely pairing, airport love run, grand romantic gesture, dark secret, and bully turns nice guy. Quoting, where one person's grumpy bastard is another's brooding heartthrob. Willa is looking for the ah moment, the zing in the manuscripts. But has she found that zing in her own life? She hasn't found the zing yet. She's only realised probably in the last seven or eight years since a very unpleasant breakup from an even more unpleasant man that this this is in fact the way she wants to feel when she's in love. And so she's just holding out for that feeling and she goes on lots and lots of dates. And lots of dating sites too. So let's just hear from Without Further Ado. Her great love needed to be someone who intrigued and amused her, someone who she could wake up next to and learn more and more about with every passing day. He must contain multitudes. Unfortunately, it wasn't easy to tell from five photos and a few sentences on a dating profile whether someone was a fascinating, multitude-containing man with a boundless capacity for long-term passionate affection outside the institution of marriage and happy to live a child-free life. So she hadn't found quote, groin sparkling excitement and breathless hope. How did she treat the men that she met? Rather as if they were disposable and not really as if they were real people with hearts and feelings. Well, she slept with them if they were particularly hot, Mm -hmm. but she didn't want to hang around with them because, well... She doesn't want to waste time if they don't give her the feeling. And even though she's acknowledged that in her manuscripts she doesn't have to get that feeling right at the start of it like she does when watching the movie, she, she does insist on it being there from the start with relationships. But she does witness a proposal. She does and she finds it extremely awkward mm. and she sees one happen and yeah. it feels very intimate and wrong to her. 
And this is with her cousin. This is her cousin who is who in Willa's opinion is too young to be getting married and she becomes engaged to one of the twin sons of Gladstone. What is Willa asked to do at the wedding? Willa is the best woman at the wedding and she's asked to organise the hen's night and she's a good 10 or 11 years older than um, Imogen and all her friends and so she has different ideas about what they might like to do for the hen's night than than the girls do. <laughs> oh, a debacle. And one of the first rules about hen's night is not having them the night before the wedding. Exactly <laughs> right. And that is, of course, when exactly when they do have this hen's night with fairly disastrous consequences. This is where Shakespeare's play appears to be copied in real life. But in Shakespeare's Much to Do About Nothing... What happens at the wedding there? At the wedding of Hero and Claudio, who are the um, characters that Imogen and Angus are most closely based on, Claudio finds out the night before or is told the night before that Hero, his fiancée, has been unfaithful to him. And he has what he thinks is pretty clear evidence. He, He sees somebody up on a balcony kissing a woman that looks like fiancé. And so at the wedding, he scorns her. He spurns the marriage. He cancels it there on the spot and is is violently angry. There is a huge incident at the wedding and it happens here as well. There's anger, tears, revenge and blame. And earlier, Ewan's wife left him as well. Oh, Jessica Detman, let's hear from page 43. So Ewan got married to his American wife, Winter, who Willa has never been a fan of. And they got married in the pandemic and they had a hotel quarantine honeymoon and came back to Australia. And now Winter has gone. He looked wretched. Yep, she had a boyfriend when she met me, Grayson. She left him the night we met. They'd had a fight and she got a migraine. I ran into her in a pharmacy trying to get something for her head. His name is Grayson? That's who she's gone back to? Just out of the blue after three years of marriage? What's his last name? Presley. Ewan looked puzzled. What's his name got to do with it? Willa wondered how to explain that a man with a name like Grayson Presley would always get the girl, especially from someone called Ewan Smith. It was narrative destiny. Grayson Presley was a proper power name a main character name. So Ewan is single now and Willa has an inconvenient lust for him. But why does she just want a friendship? Why does she just make it a friendship? It's all coming back to babies. Willa knows how much her friend Ewan wants to have children and be a father and she knows that's not something she wants in her life. And so it remains a huge barrier to them. Well, there's a lot of well-written humorous incidents, mistaken affections and lack of trust. Can't give too much away. So back to Willa and her e-book jobs, which may not be continuing at the Smith office. Willa is surprised by who writes romance fiction. You know, she thinks, well, well, maybe they were written by authors in cafes nursing a long black for six hours a day or by people who had a part-time job in an independent bookstore and wore the same jumper every day. But one of her authors is Rosalind Baker. So who was Rosalind? Rosalind Baker is the pen name for a person called Steve Murdoch. 
and Steve Murdoch is a marketing manager with two children. He lives in the suburbs. His wife is a lawyer and he writes romance novels on the side and he writes architectural time travel romance novels, (laughs) which Willa loves publishing and is very successful with. And why Steve Murdoch and why Rosalind Baker? Steve Murdoch is the name of a friend of mine. End of 2019, when we had the terrible bushfires, there was a Twitter fundraiser called Authors for Fireys and Steve was the winner of a prize that I donated, which was to have his name in my next book. And I chose this character for him and then we decided that he could have a pen name and Rosalind Baker is his mother's name. So how does Willa explain the difference between romance novels and junk food? Willa doesn't believe romance novels are junk food. Her friend Kat does. She thinks Willa wastes her time and energy making these books. She doesn't think they're important to the world. But Willa says that a good romance novel stays with you. Like all food, you don't need to retain absolutely everything you eat. You take some nutrition from it and you get rid of what's left. It passes from your consciousness or your body for food. And Willa thinks that a beautiful, helpful romance novel will help keep your heart fit. She likens it to carrot cake. She said it's got to be rich and satisfying, but it's not going to leave you with a queasy, sick feeling in your mouth afterwards. (laughs) And Willa's grandmother... Romances all have happy endings. This promotes unhealthy attitudes that a woman needs a man to be happy. People think there is nothing else to strive for in life. I love Willa's grandmother. (laughs) She's my favourite character. (laughs) So how will Willa get a romance fiction detox? (gasps) Got to read the book. Got to read the book. Willa watches the dramatisation of Shakespeare's Much To Do About Nothing and wants the same stirring in her heart and loins. She finds zing in the romance e-books she publishes, but not in her real life. Jessica Detman has written a comedy of modern love in Without Further Ado. Thank you, Jessica. Thank you, Jan. From one author to another on a very different topic, I'm sure... There was a smart student in one of your schools, possibly who played a musical instrument, the one who went on to win scholarships to an independent high school and then at uni went on with further studies. However, it was never enough. There was always a but. The but is in the title of Jessica Zahn Miu's book, But the Girl. Welcome, Jessica. Hi, so nice to be here. (laughs) The but. So why the but? The but's a real disruption for me. You know, it's not the girl, it's but the girl. And it sort of is an interruption to the kind of way that girls' stories are told. That's how I see it. Yeah. Well, we better get the but girl's backstory. Mother, her father and her grandmother. How do they fit in? There's a sort of line in the book where she says she was always forested by adults. She had three parents and... This is kind of her personal history. You know, in the book, this is the first time she's away from them. And it's really about how, you know, the people that shape you kind of make you. And it's a coming-of-age story where you kind of go back to those people rather than leave them behind. She comments about her mother, Ma, being a sharp and shrewd. Her father, affectionately named Ikanu, shark teeth, <laughs> uh, thoughtful and deliberate, and a gourmand 
of the electrical. <laughs> yeah. They're both really specific kind of characters. I think um, they're a lot like my parents, you know. I think immigrant parents are very charismatic. You know, they have their own kind of personalities. And I think it's very much about how, you know, education and opportunity makes the most of kind of your intelligence and your gifts. And these people didn't have those opportunities. And so their daughter becomes the sort of vessel through which they can express those gifts. And Grandma Ama expressed her love through anger. Yes. <laughs> I think that's very cultural and I think that's also very specific to that particular character. You know, she's been through so much and for a girl to understand the love that her grandma has for her, she has to understand that anger has a kind of love inside of it, as difficult as that is, you know, as a young person for her to kind of grasp. So at the beginning of the book, at age 22, she's flying. Where is she going? She's going to London, yes. On a scholarship. <laughs> a week in London, a month in Scotland, and then a week of a conference. Yeah. Now, it sounds great. And look, I'm sorry this is radio because the first thing I'm going to get to uh, Jessica to do is to actually explain the cover. Yes. So on the cover, it actually is it's literally Venus de Milo. You know, she's the ideal woman, the most beautiful woman, the most kind of cl beautiful classical nude. And... I love that she's on the cover because then she's sort of chopped up and she's sort of facing this way, facing that way. And it's the kind of multiple faces that girl kind of shows and the way that she kind of fits into and doesn't fit into the idea of, you know, perfect girlness or ideal womanhood. Yeah. The whole thing about faces, the many faces, being faceless, losing face, saving face. The girl's face was used on advertising at every school she went to, primary high school and even university. But it didn't reflect the culture that she felt within the schools. And also, by winning this scholarship, this artist-in-residency, it was a Commonwealth scholarship and she was a staunch Republican. So it's <laughs> these faces that she has to show. Leon met her in London and offered to show her around. She gave him her scholarship smile. What do you mean yeah. by that? I guess it's that kind of smile that you have to give when someone's given you something, you know, the kind of idea of the gift exchange. And when you're a kind of recipient, you kind of have to be grateful. You have to be grateful all the time. And there's that kind of smile that you begin to kind of feel is quite practiced and is kind of symbolic of the way that you're kind of interacting in these kinds of environments. The facial expression for the funding that you <laughs> write about. But she also, and this is when I'm going to get Jessica to read from page 162, because she's also growing up and getting a lot of looks from men. So this little passage here is really about the hypervisibility, the invisibility of being a young woman. And I'm just going to read a little paragraph from it. Well-meaning adults always told girls like me that looks didn't matter, but what they never understood was that it wasn't my looks that worried me, but the looks that men gave me. They gave me looks like they were gifts they knew I never wanted in the first place, and I didn't have the receipt to return them. I had to hide them all somewhere, somehow, as if they were mine. These looks were like a kind of visual touching, a very cunning kind of touching, because whoever lost their job or standing or family over a few stray looks. Stray looks and stray comments. Uh, she's one stage just in a swimming pool, sitting in a, a hot tub, and this man comes over and begins a conversation and then goes on, I know a thing or two about Asian women. And I 
it just makes it think, you know, <laughs> what right and what do they know? And she doesn't even know herself, so what do they know? <laughs> She's had a few issues with men wanting to help her yes. in more ways than one, possibly starting with the very first English teacher she wanted to impress. What was the subject that she wanted to impress him about? I think that in those kinds of relationships, I think the men believe they're kind of saving girl or instructing her or sort of making her become the kind of right kind of person. And I think there's an element in those relationships of, you know, you're so special and, you know, you're, you're you know, a set apart and they're kind of recruiting girl to become, you know, disciple number one. And it's a relationship that's very much about, you know, the abuse of power and the way that, you know, that's kind of used quite recklessly by these kinds of men and I think what's interesting about this and I think every woman knows this kind of story on some level is the way that education itself can be a kind of quite toxic place where more powerful much older men can kind of use their kind of prestige or kind of their the idea of artistic sanction um, to kind of validate a young woman and kind of control a young woman and I guess girls kind of caught in the thicket of that. She was. Yeah. And it was all to do with one piece of literature, which yes. was so hard to understand for a, a young year 12. And what was that literature? It was Ariel. And I believe that's still being studied in schools now. I never managed to study it. I would have loved to. But Ariel is, you know, a really confusing book for a young person. It's supposed to be a confessional, but it feels so grown up and so kind of tightly wound and so careful. And it's, of course, it's canonical literature, which this book is very much about seeing yourself and not seeing yourself in canonical literature and the complexity of that. And the subject or the writer? Sylvia Plath. <laughs> Sylvia Plath. Now, I haven't read Ariel either and I don't I haven't read The Bell Jar, but I do know about her suicide, but didn't know that she divided the literary community. And you've even given a table in this book between <laughs> the groupies and the scholars of Sylvia Plath. <laughs> I think this says more about academia than it does about Plath necessarily. I think it's very much about how academia has a very cool kind of masculine gaze on the works of, you know, this kind of this idealised woman plath and how, you know, in order to separate yourself from the amateur readers, as an academic, you kind of have to claim a kind of special knowledge or a special form of knowing that's more objective, that's more distant, that's more rational. And that's what the girl was doing. Yes. So what was, what, how was she looking at uh, Sylvia Plath? I, I think she has this very fleshly kind of impulse to understand Sylvia Plath through herself, through her personal histories, through Sylvia Plath's personal histories. But she learns very quickly that that's not really acceptable in academia and that's not the kind of way that we read and that's not what we call a kind of scholarly reading or a kind of, you know, an academic reading. And so she's fighting between the part of herself that it feels like her personal self and her kind of real self who has having these kinds of quite emotional responses to reading and that kind of academic self that she's trying to put on like a kind of big jacket. Well, there were a lot of similar similarities she saw between herself and Sylvia. Yeah. What were some of those as a student? I, I think there's some there's a line in the book where she says Sylvia Plath had a kind of special kind of sadness that it was almost like a golden happiness. And I think there's a kind of melancholy and a kind of undercurrent despair in this book. And I think there's an undercurrent despair in a lot of Plath's work as well that's been very moving to young women for like, a, a, you know, the last 60 years since the Bell Jar came out. And I think it gives... Uh, almost a, a framework or a space that a young woman could express dissatisfaction when she feels like she has to express gratitude or kind of perfect happiness. Yeah. You do quote uh, from Sylvia Plath's unabridged journal, and I sit here without identity, 
Faceless, which brings it around again. Well, there's she's at this art residency in Scotland and there are four other people there. They've got a range of artistic endeavours. There's Maeve doing large-scale tapestries of calamities, Jack making existentialist movies, Otto with sculptural installations, and Clementine. What's she doing? Clementine's sort of interested in the idea of portraiture and kind of reclaiming portraiture as this kind of quite sincere form that she's approaching in a very kind of almost satirical, ironic way. Her portraits are very kind of sly and funny and they're all of young women and kind of young artists, young female artists. And Clementine begins Painting Girl and that relationship becomes a very kind of fraught collaboration in a sense. Yeah, because the girl calls her a shape shifter. Yeah, I think Clementine is someone who is really, really charming, is really charismatic and is someone who understands what kind of person to be at any kind of given room at any kind of given time. And girl doesn't really understand how to do that. She doesn't understand how to change herself to different situations with different people. And she kind of feels at a loss for that reason. Clementine also brings out a lot of the girl because they'd have to do so many sittings together, sittings in silence, you can't move. And I love the description of the, of the portrait at the end, but you'll have to read the book to find out. The girl is meant to be using the residency to write her post-colonial novel. <laughs> But the girl is doing what? She's instead kind of sitting for portraits and I guess trading in that kind of agency of writing and that kind of voiceness for a kind of voicelessness and a kind of rather than trying to write about what she sees in the world, she's writing about being seen. And I think there's a kind of passivity to this particular character that allows her to be sort of carried on along the current of other people's desires and Clementine's just one in that long mm. line of people. Well, when we think about post-colonial history, it's looking back on a country. Yes. And what she really does is just look back on her own family history. Yes. And you realise just how naive she can be. You know, she has to decide on what quality of steak she wants and she's never had to make that decision about, <laughs> you know, how to order food. And alcohol, well, her mother worked in the emergency department at Sunshine Hospital and the, her thought about alcohol was alcohol was only good for casual violence and spiking the drinks of innocent young girls so we never had it at home. <laughs> <laughs> so she she is learning a lot. Yes. She has money so she has that going out just shopping and giving a portal into another world. We see a lot of her development but Jessica, look through the book, there's two passages that are repeated again and again. My mother's gifts were like instruments that no one had ever taught her how to play. And another one, there is nothing more embarrassing than writing a book. Firstly, why repeat those two? Is it a you know homage to some of something of Sylvia Platt's or No, I think it's just that it's that very immigrant idea that your parents kind of didn't have those opportunities, that their gifts were somewhat wasted or languished and that those gifts become your gifts. You become kind of an avatar or kind of an experiment of what would happen if those gifts were given full kind of fledged kind of education and opportunity. And it, it becomes this really complex thing where you're sort of representing multiple people, not just yourself. And there's nothing more embarrassing than writing a novel. I think that's just something about the shame of writing and the shame of writing a novel. Yeah. Let's have that last paragraph from, from page 178. I used to have this line, 
I saved and brought out for grant applications and writers' festivals. That having been Jane Eyre, Anna Karenina and Esther Greenwood all my life, my writing was an opportunity for the reader to be me. Never mind that novels were not me and that there were so many novelists before me who had done this. It was all so embarrassing to me now, my naivety, my adolescent posturing in the mirror of my own self-image. Living up to the expectations of your parents, along with years of racism and sexism, influenced the health, the writing and the maturation to womanhood in Jessica Zanmiyu's debut novel. But the girl. You've just been listening to Published or Not on 3CR.